John 17, 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. The love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Arthur C. Brooks, a conservative columnist and recent speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, wrote the following uh, in the New York Times on April 2016. He said, there's an old joke about two comedians sitting in a rowboat. One falls overboard, not able to swim. He starts waving his arms and frantically screaming, hey, I'm drowning over here. And his friend calls back, go dirty. That sums up, writes Brooks, the presidential primary races this year, at least on the Republican side. Remember, he's writing this in April 2016, uh, four years ago, a little over four years ago. And he, he continues, and if you think there is a lot of right on nastiness there in the Republican primaries, just wait until the general election campaign when the raging right meets the livid left head-on in a country that is more politically polarized than it has been in many decades. Brooks points out in that article in the Times that things are so contentious in part because the parties have become purer ideological vessels rather than the formerly mixed coalitions that covered broad spectra. In 1994, he points out nearly 40% of Republicans were more liberal than median Democrats. And 30% of Democrats were more conservative than median Republicans. Well, today, Brooks points out, those numbers have plummeted to 8% and 6%, respectively. Now, what adds to the polarization, says Brooks, is contempt. And let me quote him again. Watch and listen to politically polarized commentary today and you will see that it is more contemptuous than angry, overflowing with sneering, mockery, and disgust. Studies on the subject have shown that whereas simple anger is characterized by short-term attack responses, but long-term reconciliation, contempt is characterized by rejection and social exclusion in both the short-term and the long-term. Polarization and thus contempt leads to permanent enmity. Now, if anything, it seems to me, four years later, our moment now, things are worse than they were then. A good bit worse, in fact. Now, that's the main point I want to make. I want to depress you. I want to make you just feel how horrible everything is. No, I actually have something very positive that I want to say in the context 
of that negative reality. And, and this is the positive thing I want to say. Our present social climate presents us at Emmanuel and churches everywhere with an enormous missional opportunity. And that is to, to be, to draw friends, neighbors, cynics, and skeptics towards Jesus Christ by making our church the sort of community for which Jesus prays in John 17 and has prayed ever since down through the ages. Notice verse 23. Verse 23. Jesus prays that we may be perfectly one in a full and completed sense, one, that's what the perfect, perfect means, a kind of foretaste of heaven. Why, he goes on to pray, so that the world, world's a big word, it means friends, enemies, neighbors, colleagues, political pundits, observers of all sorts, so that the world, Jesus prays, might know, Father, that you sent me. In other words, so that because of the quality of our love, the watching world looks at us and becomes convinced that Jesus isn't just one of the many religious leaders that are confronting us in our pluralistic word world, but he is in fact the one whom the Father has sent because he's able to unite this extraordinarily diverse group of people in a way that nobody else could possibly do. Jesus goes on to pray, and that you have loved them, that, uh, that the world might know that you have sent me and that you loved them as you have loved me. We get to be a community um, in which God's love, in the, where God's love can be found, tasted, experienced by our lonely, angry, isolated friends and neighbors in the world that's watching. Now, I want to reflect in a bit more depth on the quality of the love for which Jesus prays here in John 17. And I'm going to call your attention to two things. Number one, it's a community like the community that has always existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it's a community that shares the values and the longings of God. Those two things. So here's the first one. The community for which Jesus prays and which we therefore must seek to cultivate here at Emmanuel and churches everywhere is like... It's analogous to the community that is eternally existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Verse 21, that they may be one just as, that's the language of analogy, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. Once again, the language of analogy leads to the question, okay, so what is the community between the Father and the Son like. We're to be like that community. So what is that community like? And I could say a lot about that. I'm only going to say one thing. Uh, they honor and respect each other continually. Jesus prays twice in verse 22 and 24 about the glory, the honor, the praise that you, Father, have given me, a glory that goes way back as Jesus praised before to before the foundation of the world. And this glory, it turns out, flows in both directions, not just the father towards the son, but the son towards the father. Jesus prays earlier in John 17 in verse four about his entire life, which was a life dedicated to giving glory to his father. John Samen writes in his Servants Among 
the poor newsletter the following. He says, within God's very nature is a divine rhythm or pattern of continuous giving and receiving, not only of love, but also of glory, honor, life, each in its fullness. Think about it, Simon writes, God the Father loves and delights in the Son. Remember Jesus' baptism? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus receives that love and, uh, and in turn pleases his Father. In John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do what pleases him. In John 4, my bread is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus honors the spirit, saying that we must not blaspheme against that him. That's the greatest of all, of all crimes. And the spirit, in turn, glorifies the son, and he glorifies the father. In John 16, Jesus says, the spirit is the one who takes the things that are mine, and he gives them to you. He shows you me. And in Romans 8, Paul writes about uh, the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Whenever you or I understand that God is daddy, call him Abba. Whenever we do that, it's because the spirit is teaching us to do it. And the spirit goes, yes, even though we don't say anything to the spirit or about the spirit. It's the spirit's delight to see us call the father, father. Samen goes on to say, say this, write this. Each person in the Trinity, each person in the Trinity, loves, honors, and glorifies the others, and receives love and honor back from the others. There is never any lack. It's unceasing. It's a dance, as it were, that's been going on for all eternity, going back to before anything existed, when only God in the three persons of the Trinity existed. Now, let me try to apply this. Our love is supposed to be analogous to that. Imagine a human community like that. Imagine your family that way. Imagine your marriage that way. Imagine Emmanuel Church that way all the time. Or to think more broadly, imagine an election campaign or a political party or a gathering of senators from both party together with President Trump gathered to talk about police reform, COVID policy, and racism in which every party in the discussion, to quote Paul from Romans 12, 10, is outdoing one another in showing honor. Try to imagine that. In which there's a competition, but it's a very strange competition. <laughs> in fact, there's only one competition and it's over who can understand the other party better? Who can listen more carefully to the other party? Who can speak more graciously to and about the other party? And who can better promote the legitimate interests of the other? And imagine that this competition is continual, not just when the camera is running, but constant. It goes on all the time. It's not sporadic. And imagine that it's all absolutely genuine. Imagine this gathering of politicians where this kind of respect and honor just goes on and on and on and on without ceasing. No flattery. No hidden agendas. No spin. No manipulation. Simply and always good will coming to expression. Now, this is how Jesus prays 
for the social reality of our world. It's where our world is headed when his work is finished. Um, and, and it starts, it starts now. now. What's, what's, what's that? What's that? I'm hearing myself echoed. Okay, I'm not hearing myself echoed anymore. This is how Jesus prays for the social reality of the world starting with us. Now, I may get a little pushback uh, from you all at this point. Some, many perhaps, will understandably argue that such an approach is naive in the cutthroat world that we inhabit. If we tried to do politics this way, if we tried to do foreign policy this way, we would probably accomplish nothing and we would in all likelihood be eaten alive by the others who are not doing it. Now, I get that. I live in this world. I know what this world is like. I listen to the news. But let me push back against that pushback. We still need to reckon with the fact that this is how the persons who occupy the highest seats of power and governance, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit operate and always have operated not only towards each other, but also toward us. They're image bearers. I mean, think about it. Think about God's governance of the human race down through the ages. He has never coerced us. Demons coerce us. Demons destroy or deeply inhibit human agency. But somehow, in the way in, God, in which God exercises his sovereignty, his spirit does not coerce us. God chastens geopolitically and personally. To be sure, he brings judgment upon us, but he will, and he will one day remove all that stands opposed to him. But think big picture of his uh, dealings with us down through the ages, starting with Adam. He came to Adam after Adam committed the sin that plunged our world into the horrors uh, that it now uh, has to deal with. He came with questions rather than fire. God, read the prophets. God argues, pleads, and warns. God waits, God serves, God suffers, and God weeps over millennia. Why? All because he wants us to love him freely as the father loves the son and as the son loves the father, even as he wants us to love each other freely, not because we are forced to. He wants us willingly in him. He wants us willingly with him. Now, I'm not denying God's sovereignty, rather only describing the profoundly mysterious and surprising way in which he exercises his almighty power over the human race. And when God showed up in Jesus of Nazareth, once again, we see the same thing. He neither forced nor manipulated. He neither flattered nor lied. He served and loved and respected and spoke the truth, even when it cost him his reputation and his life. And Jesus was not God 2.0, a New Testament remake of the Old Testament God of wrath. He wasn't some kind of new version. Jesus revealed God as he is. And he has, as he has always been, he who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said, according to Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature.
So here is the challenging thing for us, it seems to me. We may not yet get to try out this method of relating fully, say, at a school board meeting or in Congress or in local politics, though even in such calculating environments, genuine respect and careful listening can make an enormous difference. It did to George Washington during the explosive Constitutional Convention in 1787. But we do get to try it out full bore at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. We get to try it out full bore between churches. We get to be, in answer to the prayer of Jesus, surprisingly different from the world. A demonstration now that the future social reality has in fact landed on our planet already. Where? In us, in the church, in the quality of the way in which we relate to each other. A picture of social reality that is coming because of Jesus. And so we love one another. We get to love one another. And we must love one another in a way that's analogous to the way in which the father loves the son and the son loves the father. That's the first quality, analogy. Here's the second quality. The community for which Jesus prays shares the values and the longings of the father and the son. Verse 22 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in them, that they also may be in us with the Father and the Son experientially, morally, caught up experientially into the life and the loves of God. Jesus prays for that as well. Now, let me, let me make clear what I'm trying to say here. For us to be in Jesus and in the Father means more than to love each other in a way that is analogous to the way Jesus and the Father love each other. It means that, of course, but it means more than that. It means to love what Jesus and his Father love, to hate what Jesus and his Father hate. It means to be on the same page at the same address, morally and spiritually, not only with each other, but with them. And let me illustrate this negatively. Think by contrast of a white supremacist cell. White supremacists are like-minded. Their relationship between each other in that sense is analogous to the relationship between the father and the son. They share the same goals. They share the same loves. They share the same hatreds. They willingly live, work, and even perhaps die together in common cause. But their cause is horrific. Their cause is ugly, their cause is hateful, it's delusional, and it is cruel. They are nowhere near being on the same page, morally and spiritually, with the Father and the Son, who have given all to create a single new humanity comprised of every tribe and nation. But we should be at the same address with them. Now, let me apply this by talking about politics. And we'll talk a lot more about this this afternoon, starting at two o'clock. So this is just a little uh, foretaste of what we're going to be getting into. This is where things can get really tricky for us in the church, unless we simply deny 
our responsibility to be salt and light in the world and just withdraw into some little cloisters somewhere. Uh, unless we deny our responsibility to love our neighbors, which we mustn't do. We have social and political obligations, and we are apt, almost certain, to disagree with each other in our efforts to meet those obligations the moment we take those obligations seriously. And let me put the problem this way. What happens if I sincerely believe that my candidate or party is at or much closer to God's address, morally speaking, than yours is, say, on abortion, or on immigration, or on marriage, or on climate change, or on racial justice, or on care for the poor. What do we do when that happens, as it inevitably will happen, and as we see it happening? In uh, today, in not just in America generally, but in the church between Christians, what do we do then? Well, let me suggest two things. There's a whole lot more I could say. We'll talk about some more of that later on today. First of all, a strong dose of humility and a determination because of that humility to listen to and honor your brother and your sister on the other side of the issue say, to give a particular example, regarding the link between racism, which we all must abhor, and the continuing presence of certain statues in public places, say, Christopher Columbus at the southwest corner of Central Park in our own city, or Stonewall Jackson in Richmond, Virginia. Now, the link between these two things you might think is obvious, this, the link between racism and statues, but it is actually not quite as clear as you might think, nor is it necessarily the same from statue to statue. And so we need humbly to listen. We may discover that we've been wrong in the way we think about this issue, or at least we've been partially wrong. And we'll only learn if we stop shouting and if we humbly listen to the people who we think really have it all wrong, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing, a bit, uh, a bit more involved. What will also help us is making a careful distinction between moral principles on the one hand and political strategies on the other hand. Let me describe this distinction so you see what I mean. And we'll talk about this this afternoon in more detail. The voice of moral principle says, take the unborn, that we must not take innocent and helpless human life. And regarding the poor, that we must love the poor and seek to alleviate their distress. Those are moral principles. Political strategies are a different sort of animal. They are the flawed and blunt instruments that we come up with, which are designed to nudge the culture toward greater conformity to moral principles, they will vary. And here we may legitimately and even fervently disagree with each other in the church. Now, let me illustrate this with respect to both of those issues we talked about. Some Christians who vote Democrat will argue 
that Roe v. Wade is never going to be reversed, Supreme Court appointments notwithstanding, and that we must care for the mothers as well as for the unborn, and that the best approach, therefore, to the problem of abortion is to reduce the needs for abortions by increasing government spending on programs that make it easier for women with troubled or unwanted pregnancies to carry their children to term. Or another illustration, some Christians who vote Republican will argue that the best way for the government to serve the poor, we must care for the poor, yes, but the best way for the government to serve the poor is deregulation and lower taxes. In other words, it is to get out of the way a free enterprise and thereby allow the economy to grow, which will benefit the poor with more jobs, so goes the argument, and free up philanthropic giving. Now, here's the point I want to make from those two illustrations. Whatever or you, or you or I may think about these strategies, and we may disagree with them, what we ought to agree on is that they are not precisely the location of God's home address, morally speaking. They, those strategies I just outlined, and the strategies raised in opposition to those strategies are differing sets of directions in a complex and broken world for moving toward that address. We are perfectly free to argue with each other in the church over which set of directions is better. And the church ought to be the safest place to do this. We have the peace of Christ in our hearts, do we not? We have the love of Christ ruling in our hearts, do we not? We have the spirit of Christ at work in our hearts, do we not? But we must take care as we argue not to privilege any one of these strategies in such a way as to make second-class Christians spiritual enemies out of those who disagree with us with respect to strategy. Let me put it this way. Whenever we, on the left or on the right, whether pastors or lay people, formally or in casual conversation, identify the cause of God with a particular political strategy, when we say or even hint that the faithful Christian position on X, a problem in the culture, is Y, assuming Y is a strategy, we erect artificial, often sociologically predictable, and sometimes ugly barriers in the church or between churches. We wander from our home address in the bonds of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what is more, we throw a veil over the coming social reality for which Jesus died and for which Jesus prays. The reality we are called to demonstrate in our loving respect for each other across our differences. You see a great deal. Eschatology is at stake here. The case for Jesus is at stake here. So let me summarize. Jesus prays here, back there 2,000 years ago, but he prays today uh, for a unity in the church 
that surprises and attracts people to him. Not because it is a false unity arising from the fact that we never talk about what we disagree uh, about. We never talk about politics at church or because we are uh, uh, we are because our churches or our fellowship within the church is politically pre-selected, but rather because our unity transcends the usual and socially predictable differences. It does not deny our political differences in the church any more than it denies differences of any other sort, racial and otherwise, but it triumphs over them by not allowing them to triumph over us. It surprises the political pundit and the social scientist who thinks he has the church and therefore Jesus Christ figured out. It rocks the secularist in all of us who doubts that God can do anything substantive in the real world. It may even lead to at least the beginnings of solutions to thorny and divisive issues as we talk humbly with each other. Who knows what could happen if the church really talked? Um, It whispers hope to the cynic in all of us who is giving up on the church. It gives our friends and neighbors, even our enemies, a glimpse this sort of unity for which Jesus prays. It gives them a glimpse of heaven and draws them towards heaven. It is, in a word, strategic. It's a missional unity, as Jesus prays, so that the world might know, Father, that you sent me. Verse 23. Now, I'm almost done, but let me say one final thing. Uh, before I'm finished. I want to call your attention particularly to verse 24. It's really, if you, if you let it sit with you, it's, it's quite astonishing. Jesus prays, Father, I desire. Think of the word desire. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I, where I am. You see, Jesus doesn't simply want us to cooperate with him in some strategic enterprise, however worthwhile, say church unity for the sake of church mission. Jesus wants us. He desires us. Full stop. He desires you. He desires me. He wants us all, Republicans, Democrats, independents, cynical uh, political types, safely home, together with him and the Father. He longs for this. He wants us so profoundly that within hours of praying these remarkable words, he gave up everything in order to secure the answer to them. He willingly gave up community, didn't he? Enduring heartbreaking isolation from his beloved disciples, served up with vicious cruelty from his enemies, insult and unspeakable pain when he was beaten and then flagellated and crucified. But worse than that, far greater than that, far more profound than that, in a way that we can't possibly see 
with our, with the, except by the eyes of faith, which we can, by which we can begin to see it, Jesus gave up his father, enduring eternal banishment from the eternal love of his life. There's no way we can measure that loss by the passage of time on a Friday afternoon or by analogy from our experience. And Jesus willingly gave all that up. Why? In order to bring us all safely and with great joy through the door into glory. The good shepherd carrying his lost, angry, self-serving sheep, rejoicing home on his own shoulders. You know, friends, some Christian Republicans act like they don't want Christian Democrats at home with them. And it works the other way too. How can this be when Jesus wants us all there and has given so much to make sure that it happens to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other. You know, I find it both encouraging and consoling as I look at our polarized, angry world that the longing for community, a longing so strong that it can lead us to do great harm, even in the church, to those who seem to stand in the way of our vision for it, is not, it turns out, my or your hopeless dream. It is, in fact, heaven's dream. And because it's heaven's dream, it will happen. God himself suffered and died to make it happen, and it has already begun. That dream has begun to be fulfilled in us, in Emmanuel Church, in the church, and between the churches of this world. That's where it's happening now by God's design, by God's intention. So I'm done, but I have a little homework for you. Here's my takeaway for you. Have a, it may have to be virtual, have a virtual political cup of coffee with a fellow Christian this week. And someone from Emmanuel, extra credit if it's somebody who you know whose politics you're at odds with. Promise to listen. Say that you really want to understand and then keep your promise. Listen. (laughs) Listen hard. Look hard for commonalities in the area of moral principle, even if your strategies differ. Agree to disagree if you have to. Pray together with each other. Don't preach at each other when you pray. No, bad. (laughs) No, but pray where you can together. And as soon as you possibly can, I know it's, it's not in the cards just yet. Determine to have the Lord's Supper together. Go up together and receive the element. In other words, with your bodies, demonstrate what Christ has done by breaking down the dividing walls of hostility between us, including the political walls that separate us. Do that as soon as you can. Our cynical isolated, secular, lonely, polarized friends 
you see, they don't just need another intellectual argument for Jesus. Of course, they need those. But they especially need a social argument. They need to see love working in a way it is not working in the world. They need to experience love working in a way that it is not working in the world. They need to see the church being the church according to God's design. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, where would we be if you did not pray this way for us? Lord, we would be like Cain killing Abel. And sometimes, Lord, we still are. And it's wrong. And we're sorry. Lord, would you help us? Would you fulfill in us this prayer? Help us to love each other the way you love the Father and the Father loves you. Help us to love what you love. We pray these things for your glory's sake, for your name's sake, and for our own good. Amen.